It is a necessary ingredient for change. Trust doesn't come easily. It's earned. And you can only move at the speed of trust. And what, what I mean by that is, especially when you're engaging community and specifically disinvested neighborhoods, which is where I spent the majority of my career, is working in neighborhoods where they had absolutely no reason to trust a government suit. And I was a government suit, like I worked for the government. And it's well-documented the atrocities that government has perpetuated on disinvested communities of color across the country and in cities, bad urban planning. And here I am, an urban planner. And so first it's acknowledging and not shying away from the hard truths to really own bad policy, bad planning in the past, and to really say that we are going to do better. Have you ever noticed that some of the best ideas come from unexpected places? Your next breakthrough may come from a leader facing similar challenges, but in a completely different sector. Welcome to Chief Influencer. I'm your host, Anthony Shop. Join us as we explore how today's successful leaders inspire, influence, and connect with others. Chief Influencer is a production of Social Driver and the Communications Board, who have teamed up to spotlight how great leaders and communicators are making their impact in the world. This episode is brought to you by the George Washington University's College of Professional Studies, with in-person and online programs, ranging from master's degrees in public relations strategy to certificate programs in digital communications. GW offers more than just the credentials to help working professionals get ahead. It prepares them to be leaders in their field. As a proud GW graduate myself, I can attest that faculty members combine academic rigor with real-world lessons that can't always be found in textbooks. Check out cps.gwu.edu for more information. I'm so excited to introduce today's guest, Kimberly Driggins. Kimberly is a nationally recognized expert in urban redevelopment and placemaking. She's currently the executive director of the Washington Housing Conservancy, which launched in 2018 with a commitment to create thriving, inclusive mixed income communities throughout the DC region. Kimberly has an extensive background in urban planning and real estate development. And prior to her appointment at WHC, she served as the director of strategic planning for the city of Detroit, as well as associate director for citywide planning for the District of Columbia. Kimberly currently serves on the board of the National Landing Business Improvement District, and was board chairperson for the Gell Institute, which is focused on making cities for people. She has a BA degree from Hampton University and an MPP from the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. And Kimberly was awarded the prestigious Loeb Fellowship from Harvard University's Graduate School of Design, which I'm excited to dive into a little bit more. Kimberly, you've been called an innovative urbanist and a placemaker. Today, we're thrilled to call you a chief influencer. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Anthony, for having me. Well, I'm really excited to dive into this topic because, you know, it affects all of us, but but few are experts in uh, planning and design the way you are. When you and I met before, you mentioned that one of your mentors actually said that people in your field have to be chief influencers. So I wondered if we could start there. Why do you think influence is so important to the work that you and folks like you do? Sure. Yeah, that was really great um, advice and mentorship. So my my former boss, Harriet Tregroni, who is a rock star in the transportation world, specifically um, smart growth and also having worked um, in HUD and 
was my boss at the DC Office of Planning. Um, really, the comment was around planning, planning and design. Um, planning departments, you know, are are so critical, but they're a really small agency in most cities, right? And their main job is to think about reimagining neighborhoods and spaces, and then the more technical stuff, zoning and design guidelines. So I say all this to say is when she made that comment to me and really um, what she thought her job was, it's that, you know, as planning director of a major city, your job is to really help influence other agency directors and bring your colleagues along to the vision. So mm -hmm. urban planners are really thinking about the future. And a lot of times in government, it's really just about the day to day. And then um, secondly, we don't have the budgets to implement. So, you know, it's the housing and community development. It's the Department of the Environment. It is Department of Transportation. All of those agencies, parks and recreation, all of those agencies have way more budgets to do the projects, the capital projects that the Office of Planning or planning directors are actually planning for. So we have to make sure that we are um, bringing and being inclusive in how we're planning for the city and getting buy-in at the early stages so implementation of the planning work can be smoother. So ergo, or hence influencing, um, a chief influencer in those conversations at the highest level. So it's one thing to say how important it is to do it. I'm sure what a lot of leaders face, whether they're, you know, influencing government or other stakeholders is how to do it. And I wondered if you could share some things that you've learned in your career about how to influence others when you're trying to get so many different, um, you know, stakeholders and groups together toward a common vision. Yeah, it's a really tough thing. You know, it's an ongoing, you know, the work that we do, you know, we're on the ground. So it's, it's influencing, it's, it's really building consensus as well. I think that when you influence, you're really building, um, you're building a, a coalition and you're building consensus um, to help drive what you're trying to do. And that is certainly what urban planners have to do. They're working with community, they're working with agency directors, they're working with elected officials. And it's over the course of several months, typically, um, when you're working on a project and a plan. And the worst thing for us is to do a, a very long engagement process and then not have the plan move forward or be implemented. So all the while you're building its advocacy, its coalition building, its community resident, direct resident engagement, and it's building the coalition, the willing with your peers. All of those things drive influence. Yeah. I want to talk about um, your current role. So you lead the Washington Housing Conservancy. And I know it's not a traditional affordable housing organization. What makes it different? So another great question, Anthony. So the Washington Housing Conservancy, first of all, our DNA is different. Um, you know, we were really born out of the private sector and we're filling a gap in the market. So um, traditionally, most affordable housing organizations 
uh, focus on the most in need, which I totally get. Um, and that's the folks that are, you know, really, they're not making as much money and they need the most assistance. Um, the Washington Housing Conservancy, we're focusing on workforce or essential housing. And this is housing for your teachers, your first responders, your daycare workers, your hospitality wor workers. The backbone of any thriving economy are, is are these workers. However, their wages have not kept up with the cost of living and strong market cities like the Washington metro area, New York, Boston. I mean, it's it's a crisis situation um, in these types of markets, Miami, um, certainly California, most of California. And so we're, we're creating and preserving housing for workforce um, for the workforce where they're not eligible for um, the lower income housing, their incomes are too high. And while it's a decent wage, the 75 to 100 K that that's a good, that's a good wage. That's a good job, but it's, that doesn't go very far in a market like DC. And so we do, um, we do focus on workforce. We are a mixed income model. So our, Projects actually have a range of incomes, but our sweet spot is workforce. And typically, dollars to do that type of preservation are non-existent. So we created our own social impact fund um, to actually help us compete with for-profit developers to acquire these properties. It, yeah, I mean, it's the way you describe that. If your teachers and firefighters can't afford to live in your community, that kind of leads to some breakdown in community, right? So it's really important that everybody can, you know, can be part of the community. And I wonder how did you pitch that to be able to um, raise the fund? You know, like like what's the message for investors that might be different or the same from your message to policymakers? Sure. Yeah. Um, it's really you know we have to really expand the definition of affordable housing, right? That's one of the first things. Most people have a very um, specific, if they think about it at all, they have a, a notion of what it is and it usually isn't positive, right? It's like we've othered affordable housing for quote unquote, those people are very low income and the definition of who's in need has expanded. It's certainly a challenge and I'm certainly not minimizing the, the need um, and the challenges at the lower end of the economic scale. But it, what I'm saying is that the need has increased. And if we want to actually tackle and solve the problem, we need more upstream solutions where people who actually, um, you know, have jobs such as teachers, firefighters, your hospitality workers, your daycare workers, if they want to live where they work, you know, we're creating um, an environment where that's going to be easier to do as opposed to being pushed further and further out from where you actually work. Um, so the value proposition is really about expanding the definition of who's in need to, and, and within that expansion of the definition, really thinking also about attracting different types of resources. I worked for government for 15 years, over 15 years, both in the District of Columbia, as well as the city of Detroit. And I certainly believe that the city, that government's main 
priority is to serve those most in need, which is why we have um, investment that's not from the government, right? It's private sector. I think in meeting this challenge, you need to attract additional resources and not rely exclusively on government. Government is not gonna solve the housing affordability crisis on its own. Innovative solutions, uh, partnerships, public-private partnerships are needed uh, desperately to really um, make a dent um, in solving this problem. And I would say this, this region is pretty well-resourced. We have very sophisticated governments locally, the district, Northern Virginia, Arlington, Alexandria, Maryland, Prince George's County. It's, it, you know, Montgomery County. It's, there's, there's exceptional leadership local leadership, local government leadership. And there's a definitely a level of funding that would make other parts of the country jealous. And we're still not meeting the challenge. So that tells you that more sectors have to dial in, philanthropy and, and corporate sector in particular. Yeah. You know, what I'm hearing, um, this, this notion of, you know, expanding the definition so that people understand kind of this this approach and then also new ways of doing it not only relying on government but philanthropy private sector funding sort of all of this coordination you know it strikes me as you're innovating in this field and and that's obviously something i know that's really important to you so i wonder if you could talk a bit more about um you know how do you get folks on board with this innovation? Because, you know, people don't generally like change, do they? And so, and so, but to address these challenges, you have to bring in new approaches. And obviously that's one of the reasons that, you know, you were called on to, to uh, play this leadership role. Yes, it's a, it's another great question, Anthony. And, you know, really, I think that we're in a crisis state in the, the DC metro region. So, I mean, I think that the message isn't, I think, you know, when you lay it out for people, they they get it. I think also, again, sometimes people just are expecting, oh, you know, well, the government should do that. And, you know, the government is doing all that it can. And it's and it, it housing is not just the only thing that government is is putting money into. Right. Like it's always like you don't have enough money to to do all the things that you need to do. Public safety is a big issue. Transportation, education, um, not to mention, you know, our, our parks and recreation. Like, you know, all these things are what, you know, government just can't focus on one thing. We have the luxury of focusing, being laser focused. And, you know, in terms of, you know, um, influencing or making the pitch, you know, and why innovation and housing, affordable housing is needed is that, by and large, the greatest generator of affordable housing is the low-income housing tax credit. It's been around for 30 plus years, 30, 40 plus years. And that is single-handedly the main tool for creating um, affordable housing. And just think about that. And what other industry is there really only, there's, you know, two or three tools that produce a thing. Like usually fields are innovating constantly. And, you know, we just haven't been doing that. It's the low-income housing tax credit. Locally, it's the housing production trust funds. Federally, it's the low-income housing tax credit and um, monies from HUD, um, housing and urban development. And that's by and large what drives um, the production and preservation of affordable housing, but it's not enough. And that's those have been the tools for the last, you know, 
certainly 25 to 40 years. So, you know, so just think about that. Like, you know, it's just like in very, in very few industries are there so few tools to combat um, a problem that's just getting worse. So, you know, when you when I when you lay it out like that, it makes sense that you need more innovation. It makes sense that there's a role for other sectors to play. And it directly affects them. It directly impacts them. When you're talking about the corporate sector, by and large, it's their workers, right, that are being impacted. So there's an inherent proposition, especially when you're talking about hospitals and 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 universities and those are our largest employers in the region and when i talk about workforce it is certainly when you think about the ecosystem of a hospital and a university it's a large percentage so when you think about it like that the light bulbs really go off mm. yeah you know with these long term challenging situations i mean you mentioned it's like a crisis you know not just in the region that you serve but i mean you know nationally, there are so many places where it's a crisis. Um, I think it's easy for a lot of folks to just go, this is impossible, you know, <laughs> just kind of have a sense of hopelessness. Um, you had the opportunity, you received the prestigious Loeb Fellowship from Harvard University. And one of the things, as you know, I looked into that, you and I talked about it, um, they really challenged folks who are part of that to be unapologetically audacious and bold. And you know, obviously that is needed when you have to um, shift people from just thinking, well, it's not even worth trying because we can't do anything about it, right? Because you're trying to bring solutions in a really tough circumstance. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that experience and about that approach, because um, a lot of leaders are in fields where they face major challenges and a bunch of folks might be complacent and just feel like it's impossible and they have to bring a bold vision to get people on board, you know, to make that change. And so I'd love to hear more about how you've done that. And I know that the Loeb Fellowship was a catalyst for that for you. Yeah, it, it really was. And, you know, I think that leaders, you know, it sounds cliche, but leaders have to lead and it's not about the status quo. I mean, the status quo is really not acceptable when you think about our cities and urban environments and all the challenges that we're facing. And, and if you believe, and I believe, and I love cities, right? You know, I call myself, you know, an urbanist. I feel that I am. And that really means that I love everything about cities from the density to, you know, public transportation to the diversity that cities um, have, I celebrate everything that it makes a city a city. Um, to that end, you know, the issues and the challenges, um, you know, thinking about that. So the Loeb Fellowship was really created when cities were on a decline. And this was in the late 60s, early 70s, when there was mass exodus to the suburbs. And, you know, cities were, were really spiraling downward um, fast. And the Loeb Fellowship was created to really um, attract people to the field. And this could be anyone from, you know, an, a community organizer to an artist to urban planning folks, anyone in the built environment, architects, landscape architects, um, but not necessarily that you have to have that degree, but you're making an impact on the built environment. So it's a pretty broad range. Journalists have done it, people who write about cities. Um, so 
the fellowship is meant to give you a year. It's a sabbatical. I call it an adult gap year where you're surrounded, you're around people like yourself, but also very different. It's nine to 10 fellows a year from all over the world. It it, it skews toward the U.S., so about 70% are from the U.S., about 30% are international. And you spend this incredible year really thinking about, you know, the um, issues that you work on, but also being expanded around with the people around you. So you're you're in residence, um, you're not in school, but you're in residence and you are both a help to the students and the faculty and one another. And so think about it as an incubator of really interesting um, leaders, influencers who have done some very um, impactful work in their respective locations, but want to take themselves and their work to the next level. So it's really meant to help you to get yourself to the next level and to really help expand your thinking. That's in essence what the Loeb Fellowship does. And it certainly did that for me. And it really um, encourages you to step into leadership to step into boldness and to go for it, like, you know, 200%. Um, and that that was um, a game changer for me. What did you learn from some of the other leaders in the fellowship? I'm sure you've even stayed in touch with some of them um, yeah. about influence. You know, we, you know, we we worked at different scales. Some worked at, you know, at the government like highest level. I was with um, an amazing architect and from Medellin, Colombia, and he was working with the president of the country right. around building beauty in the favelas. And like, so there was these beautiful um, libraries and and rec centers and sort of the um, most impoverished places in in Colombia and Medellin in particular. And you know, what I learned from him was really that, you know, you know, architecture design, like visually, like I'm not, I'm not an architect. And so I really got an appreciation for how designers think and the value of visual, of being able to see something, to reimagine something visually. And so that was a big, I got that from a few of the fellows. Also, there were folks working at the grassroots level and just really their commitment to their communities in such a deep way, living there, working there. Um, so it, it was learning 24 seven, but more importantly, it's like whatever we were working on, there were just a lot of commonalities and themes. And this is throughout my life. There's more that unites us than divides us. And that, you know, definitely held true, you know, um, with the low fellowship experience and just my life in general. Yeah. I love that. That that sounds like such an incredible experience, you know, um, to be able to take that adult gap year and just, you know, work with with these other folks. And you can see how that would really influence the way that um, you do the work you do now. I know, you know, to influence. Can I just folks, make a statement oh, about that? Yeah. And it's 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 a sabbatical. You know, many people. I will I, I will tell you that um, BIPOC women. We don't often have. BIPOC women leaders, we don't have the luxury of being able to rest. And like, you know, it would, you know, so a sabbatical or adult gap year, that's a radical notion for many of us who are just entrenched in the work. 
And, you know, oftentimes people will have a sabbatical forced or unforced. They're able to do that. But most people who do that have the means, have the financial means to be able to take the time off. And one of the things I've realized is that you cannot go 24 seven, 365 days out of the year. It does take a toll that you do have to pause, take a minute, rest. It makes you and recharge and it makes you better to go back into the environment, the workplace, the things that you're trying to change. But I really learned that 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 year. I had not taken a break. I'd worked close to 20 years before that. Um, and it really, it really was such a radical move on my part to voluntarily step away from the workforce to be able to um, have that experience. And I consider that, you know, to be um, you know, from a place of privilege that I was able to do that, but it really did um, help reset and just recharge and reignite my passion for the work. Well, what a gift to be able to do that, but then, you know, gift you've given by channeling that um, to, you know, toward the community to make it a better place. So I think it's incredible. Um, it When we talk about influence, one of the things that's just critical, and I think you know, now more than ever, is building trust. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could talk about you know what you've learned in your roles and kind of the what you bring to your current leadership role um, around building trust. It's absolutely essential in the work that I've done, the work I continue to do, and you know it's just it is a necessary ingredient for change. Um, trust doesn't come easily. It's it's hard. It's it's earned. You know, you have to do the work. You have to put in the, the work, and you can only move at the speed of trust. And what what I mean by that is, especially when you're engaging community, and community specifically, and disinvested neighborhoods, which is where I spent the majority of my career, is working in neighborhoods where they had absolutely no reason to trust. A government suit. And I was a government suit, like I worked for the government. And there's, you know, it's well documented the atrocities that government has perpetuated on um, disinvested communities of color, um, you know, across the country and in cities, bad urban planning. And here I am, you know, an urban planner. And so first it's acknowledging and not shying away from the hard truths to really own bad um, policy, bad planning in the past, and to really say that we are going to do better. I honestly believe that we are doing better, that we have learned from those mistakes. So it's really coming in humble. It's acknowledging past uh, wrongs um, that seriously damage the community and committing um, to to just doing things, righting wrongs, doing things differently, and listening to community. Um, that's how you start to build trust. It's also how you build um, stakeholders. And I think it's early and often showing up, being there um, and showing up often, not just a one and done, like I went to the community one time. You know, you have to come over and over and over again. Um, you know, it helps if you live in the community. I actually wasn't living in the communities that I was working in, but I showed up to other community meetings. It's doing the time, doing the time to um, 
establish those connections and making meaningful connections. And not everybody's cut out for it. Not everybody's cut out for that work. Um, as it translates to the work that I do now, it's really about building, like meaning what you say. I really believe in um, being true to my word and living my values. And so with stakeholders, with funders, with residents that we're serving, it's really being as honest as you can be, as you know, being transparent and really following through. That's how you build trust when you're building a, a nascent organization. And I really believe in small wins. You know, this is, I believe in the long game, but you have to have some small wins to show that you are making progress on these audacious goals. Um, and that change doesn't happen overnight, but you have to have small wins for people to really start believing. I love that, Kimberly, because, you know, I think any leader can, um, relate to the fact that there are things that they didn't necessarily do, but that they have to take responsibility for and own those wrongs so that they can move forward because somebody has to do it right to be able to you know, get the community to start to see where you're going and, and to, to, to build that trust. That's important. And it's acknowledging that, you know, things weren't okay, right? Like, and I think sometimes people feel like, you know, because I wasn't there, I didn't do it, not my responsibility. But we do have a collective responsibility to take, you know, to 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 say the truth, to speak the truth, to acknowledge someone's pain. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. I think that that's such a great lesson. That's not saying you were you personally were responsible for it, right. but when you're talking about an organization, your organization very well could have been. Doesn't well, necessarily mean you Joe Schmo, it's yeah. you, but if your organization this in this instance, you know, uh, you know where I was working, you know, you have to take some responsibility for that. And like you said, you can't just be once. You have to consistently show up show you know, up so that folks realize that you know you're really committed and it's not just popping in making a statement and then they never see you again that's not a great way to build trust either no i mean that is what it is you know you know you just you know when you're just flying in you know and, and and coming out and not not being authentic in the engagement yeah you talked about the small wins and I think in the work that you do, I suspect it's just so important how people perceive their own communities. Um, and I know you were involved in some work um, with the Arts Festival hmm. with the goal of really changing the way people see and, and feel about Anacostia. Um, and, you know, some folks listening may not be familiar with Anacostia because they may not, you know, live in the D.C. area. But maybe you can talk about that. And in particular, I just want to think about how can sometimes a moment in time or an experience make a perception shift the way people feel about a place or a, or a topic that um, you know can have ripple effects for the long term? Yeah, so this is what I was in the DC Office of Planning, and um, you know we were working on um, this uh, creative placemaking project, and um, Anacostia. This was like you know twelve, thirteen years ago, right? So this is like, you know, 2010, 2011, 20, yeah, 2011, 2012, around that time. And, you know, I, I think there's, you know, people like, I love the people of Anacostia. They have strong pride 
in their neighborhoods. So to be very clear, it's the perception um, that people had of Anacostia and not the people living there. Like they yeah. knew they knew how special their neighborhood is. Um, and, you know, what we were trying to do was shine a light on all the positive things. Like sometimes neighborhoods, you know, there, there are issues. I'm not saying that there weren't issues there, um, that there aren't issues now there, but it's a balanced narrative, right? Sometimes the negative things that are happening in a place can drive the narrative 100%. And the goal of what we were doing was really trying to tell the narrative of how strong, how creative. There are all these artists. You know, artists often, you know, go to the places that are the, the most affordable, that have space for them to create. And so there was this great artist community in Anacostia, and we wanted to uplift that and celebrate that. So we created an arts festival that took place in Anacostia, and um, it was mod. It was um, created after the Nuit Blanche festival um, that happens in cities and Paris and you know across the world. We put our own spin on it and called it uh, Luminate Anacostia, which people immediately got. And you know, it was you know it was over the course of you know I think you know two months um, of of heavy arts and arts and culture programming, um, but the kickoff and the end were sort of the most spectacular in terms of a light festival, in terms of, you know, an all, not all night, but close to like one, two o'clock um, in, in warehouses that are probably filled. That was Busboys and Poets first. They did a pop-up um, at the festival, and that was um, one of the early introductions to Busboys and Poets um, east of the river. And while it took a while for them to open up a bricks and mortar restaurant there, they did, but the seeds were sown mm. at that festival and the idea and looking at the demand, the, uh, you know, the untapped demand um, for a sit down restaurant there. So things can happen. We were meant, and, and the people, I mean, I had people say, oh, this can't happen here. This won't be a success. I had ANC, which is advisory neighborhood commissioners that were, some were for it, some were against it. But that night, everyone was celebrating and people admitted, you know, they were wrong, that we were glad that, that we held true to the vision. We partnered locally with um, a CDC focused on arts and culture. Um, we hired local artists. So this wasn't us coming in importing the talent. Um, we kept the dollars in the community. We occupied vacant storefronts along MLK um, and the artists, um, and it rent-free, rent-free um, pop-ups because activity is really important. When there's a high level of vacancy, something going on is in of itself inspiring. So I could go on and on about that project. It's really near and dear to my heart, but it really was about proof of concept, what's possible, and changing the narrative. Those were the key drivers. Um, and you know, you can look at Anacostia today, and it is a different place, but it still has those bones. Um, and I'm, I'm when I go over there, I'm just really I'm pleased at what I see over there. Yeah, well, I love that story, and I didn't know the piece about busboys and poets, which is obviously a really, you know, well-known establishment um, in the D.C. area that the seeds were sown through that festival. So that's a really cool 
story. And it shows how, you know, sometimes influence, it is kind of like planting a seed. It might take a while to germinate and grow. You got to water it, you know, yeah. all the things. But, um, you know, just hearing about that, that the festival and all of the intentionality around that, um, shifting perception, changing the narrative. But I just think about how you influenced so many people, you know, people you wouldn't even necessarily know you influenced um, through that experience. And so that's a pretty cool story. Well, it was it, it was one of the highlights, I'd have to say. Um, people still remember it. I still have my T-shirt. I wear it. Um, you know, people that worked on it, they're off doing like amazing things. A lot of those folks are involved in the 11th Street Bridge Park project that Scott Kratz is leading, um, you know, uh, and, you know, so the work continues. It looks different, but many of those folks are actively involved um, in their community to this day. Awesome. I mean, I would say that there's there's strong, strong. I mean, I just I really admire and respect the residents there because they are um, really committed. Yeah. Well, to close us out today, I just wanted to ask, you know, we've talked a lot about influence and building trust and the different ways you've done that in the government and now in your role with the Housing Conservancy. But um, if you go back to, you know, Kimberly, at the beginning of your career, what's something that you know now that you wish you knew then about the power of influence and how to do that? Wow, that's, that's a good question. You might have stopped me, Anthony. Uh, um, I think, I think when I was younger, I didn't know if I knew enough, right? I think that, you know, if I were to tell my younger self, if I were to go back like in high school, I mean, I think, you know, I, I held leadership positions, but I wasn't necessarily using my voice. And I think I wasn't necessarily um, trusting my gut. So it was more about things that I was reading or playing it safe, right? So I think that I would tell my younger self about influence is like, no idea is a bad idea. You know, I think that I was um, and still am, you know, very type A, you know, I was you know, a good student, you know, like all the things, but to take, take risks, maybe color outside the lines. I do that now, but back then I was more cautious, um, about really going against the grain, so to speak. And now I actually really embrace that. And so I would tell my younger self about influences that there's something to be said, um, for going outside the lines, um, for um, you know, expanding and going against the grain, um, not just to go against the grain, but for for to advance a, a purpose or an idea that you deeply believe. Sometimes you do have to go outside the norm, and that's okay. And there's a way to do that, and there's a way to influence and build and and move forward. So, so I think that's the advice I would give my younger self is to. Um, take more risks at an earlier stage because um, failure is not really failure, right? It's it's teaching you a lesson. If you even look at it as a failure, right? Everything that you do in life leads to the next thing. It really does. And it helps you, it helps you become a better person. And if you're in and wanting to embrace leadership, it helps you become a better leader. And it's humbling, 
And I think leaders need to be humble. Yeah, I love that. You know, I think a lot of folks, especially earlier, but all leaders, you know, they might have some bold idea, like, and their gut is saying, this is, you know, something to do. And yet their their head may tell them or other people may say, you know, what are you doing? Or why would you do that? And, um, you know, listening to that gut feeling and being willing to take those risks that, you know, requires a bit of a leap, but you can- No see. risk, no reward, right? It's Absolutely. like, I, you know, so those, those things, I really do believe that actually. Yeah, and seeing what you've accomplished and the impact that you've made in multiple communities, um, in multiple roles, you know, it shows the power of, of listening to that bold voice and that the stakeholders will come around if you're confident in it, you know, because you've certainly done a great job of getting various stakeholders to come together and see the vision of what you're doing. So also being able to translate, right, that mm. bold vision that people might not be there yet. You have to mm. be able to translate your vision um, for audiences and relate it to something that they do get. That's in this position that I'm in now. That's really what I spend most of my time doing. Yeah, and you at the top, you did that so well, just talking about the importance of workforce housing and the specific roles and why that is part of the community. And I can see how your ability to translate that so that folks go, okay, I get this now um, is a really, you know, it's one of your superpowers of influence. Yeah. So very nice of you to say, I appreciate the kind words. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm so happy that we were able to spend time together today. Thank you for sharing um, your experience of, of influence and about, you know, I think a field that many people around planning and housing are not that familiar with. There were a lot of great nuggets that we can take away no matter what field we're in about building um, coalitions and consensus and about establishing and building trust. And I think really importantly, trusting your gut, um, but then translating that so that others can come on board and see the vision that that you have. Because, you know, if it's vision, it's in the future. It's something that other people haven't seen yet. And so they have to have a leap of faith to come on board with you and, and be part of that. Um, so Kimberly, thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate um, the conversation today. It, it was fun and um, you made it easy. So thank you, Anthony. And um, let's let's keep in touch. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Chief Influencer, a production of Social Driver and the Communications Board. If you know a leader who should be featured as a chief influencer, please nominate them at chiefinfluencer.org. For show notes and more, visit us at chiefinfluencer.org or follow Chief Influencer on LinkedIn. Until next time.